and welcome to 3-Bit Design, where we break down some of the most influential games into the three bits that we think defined them the most. I'm Tristan. I'm Oliver. And we like to talk about game design things through the lens of games, I guess. Uh, a reminder, if this is your first time joining us, that there will be spoilers ahead for the game we're talking about today. Um, and the structure of talking about that game is to give a brief description of what it is, and then to dive into three topics or areas of discussion or three bits uh, that we think are exciting. And today, we are talking about Slay the Spire. We are, and I think we can't actually spoil too much about this game. That's a good point. How did you feel, uh, this is <laughs> going straight in, like, head first into the deep end, but how did you feel about the narrative that held the game together, just generally? Yeah, I thought it's, it's like, very traditional rogue-like, where it doesn't really care too much about your previous time yeah um, yeah it's sort of it's housed in its own uh, yeah. narrative conceit for why you are doing this again and again it's and definitely again. not super narrative driven but i think it makes it work in its own way but we'll discuss in our bits we shall indeed sorry for uh, pulling us right off the road <laughs> but you know as you we've we've recorded a few episodes uh, up to this point and now we're starting to get used to the structure i think we're finding ways to uh, bend the rules i suppose <laughs> so uh, back on track, the description for this game is um, Slay the Spire being a roguelike deck-building game. It was developed by Megacrit, published by Humble Bundle. It was first released in early access in late 2017, uh, and their official release was later in January of 2019. After that, throughout that year, they released the game on all of the consoles that you would expect, and then in 2020, they did an iOS version, a mobile version, at least for Apple, and then Android was in 2021. So they've been <laughs> constantly getting this game out to as many different platforms as they possibly can, which is great. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. <laughs> Two it years is. in early access, though. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a bit like a Hades approach. Yes. Then. and successfully so, I think. Yeah. They were very, to my knowledge, they were very close with their community. They really spoke a lot. They had a good system for getting feedback and responding to that feedback and mm. staying in touch and having a lot of beta testers, etc., etc. Uh, but yeah, they did do well. Yeah. And ever since the game out, lots of spin-offs and games that want to be like it have come out. True that. In Slay the Spire, the player, through one of four characters, attempts to ascend a spire of multiple floors created through procedural generation and battling through enemies and bosses. Combat takes place through a collectible card game-based system, with the player gaining new cards as rewards from combat and other means, which requires the player to use strategies of deck-building games to construct an effective deck to complete the climb. That is a portion we will dive into quite richly, I think, as we discuss. Mm -hmm. As Oliver has mentioned, Slay the Spire has been very well received. It was nominated for several accolades and is, in fact, considered the game that launched a number of roguelike deck-building games. However, I will say that in my research, I found something, and this is the spirit of Oliver channeling through me. <laughs> it is not the first deck-builder roguelike. Did you know this? Hmm. So even though it inspired many to follow uh, in the years like 2020 through to our present day, time of recording, 2022, um, the progenitor for what Slay the Spire is in terms of you know, roguelike deck builder, uh, the game that did that first was Dream Quest, apparently, which sadly doesn't hold up to current uh, game quality if you look at it now on Steam. 
but mm. I thought that was I haven't nice. heard of that one. Last yeah. bit to add. Yeah, it, it looked like it uh, had a little bit of stickman art and stuff as I, I see. flick to it quickly. That is the description or the brief on the game we're looking at today. Beautiful. I don't have anything to add to that this time. Can can you believe we are rocking the boat so much today? <laughs> but I'm I'm okay with it. We are, I'm happy to hand over to you and tackle our first bit, Oliver. Alrighty. So our first bit for this week is risk versus reward, and the element of meaningful choices in this game, which it does very well. So first part of that is. The, br the branching path choices in your climb in general. So each of the choices, it can be regular enemies, elite enemies, random encounters, or events they're called, uh, campfires and chests. Each of them are worthwhile in their own regard, depending on what condition you your character is in at the time, what, what amount of health they have, what sort of um, additional perks or equipment could come in useful. Oh, and there's also the shop as another possible encounter. So which you might then, if you have enough money, you might want to go for the shop. If you don't have a lot of health, you might go for the campfire. If you're looking for more cards, you might go for an enemy battle. And if it's regular enemies versus elite enemies, um, it's sort of that risk for, it's the extra bit of risk versus reward where you're thinking, do I make it easier for myself to just climb and face the regular enemies but will face less worthwhile rewards or do I face the elite enemy and possibly get a very rare card out of that battle. Um, so first thing it does is all of these elements on the map are very well balanced and then within the battles themselves there is a very interesting option to either claim rewards or skip them. So the main thing this does it well with is cards, because the game starts with a very balanced set of attack and defense cards. It's it's like 50-50 pretty much in your, in your setup in any which character. Um, but then the more cards you claim from battles, the more that deck grows. But then as the game hints at you a lot of times, it says it's not always a good idea to add another card to your deck. And the reason why this is is because the bigger your deck becomes, the harder it becomes to predict what's coming up next and the harder you keep that balance between attack and defense. So when you need to def defend, you might not always have the cards if your deck is highly skewed towards attack abilities or powers. Um, and... So yeah, that's a very interesting thing. You can you can just you can claim the rewards, or you can just leave them behind and skip them, depending on what you think is the right thing to do at the time. I I haven't found myself skipping a lot of cards personally, but mm. there have been times where it was like only common cards pretty far in that I would leave them behind because I I don't think I need them. But so, uh, it's definitely like, later on in the game. At, at the start of the game, I pretty much claim cards. Yeah, because you want to start shaping yeah. your deck. Does that mean, sorry to interrupt there, when you say you leave them behind, do you mean when you get the loot or the, the reward choice to add a card to your deck, you look at them and go, okay, there's only common, I'm going to just skip this and carry yeah. on. Okay, okay. Yeah. Or 
or I've realized that I'm getting a lot of attack cards lately, and I shouldn't add another attack card to my pile. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I'm never gonna be be able to get the shields I need. Yeah. Um, so that's super cool. Uh, they do the same with potions. Uh, you can also leave those behind. I uh, think relics you might have to claim. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, I... I do not know. I <laughs> get the sense that when you get the rewards there, you you do get to choose whether you want any yeah. of them or none of them. Uh, yeah. And I think relic is part of that, but I could be entirely wrong. Hopefully someone uh, with more experience <laughs> right now will know and give us a comment. Yeah. Anyway, they do it very well. And um, also the... It's with the potions. It's interesting because you have like three slots, I think, three or four, um, and then if once those are filled, it's it be, at that point it becomes a case of if you haven't used them, um, do you want to swap this new potion that it's offering you with one discarding one of the ones you have, um, and it becomes like a game of what is the bonus I'm gonna need in the near future, yeah, and it's a very sort of strategic mindset at that point. I always, I always feel like I'm not using my potions at the right time, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I that's think a tricky one. There's, there's more people who have that same problem. I think not just speaking anecdotally about mm -hmm. myself, but in preparing for this podcast, I listen to another podcast, uh, and I forget the name right now, which is terrible. Uh, I know I was listening to Eggplant, Secret Lives of Games, and they had an interview with, I think it was both uh, the, the devs on at Megacrit but this other one kind of just said they didn't interview anyone they were just like reflecting on the game and mm -hmm. they said a similar thing to what you just said as well they're like potions are only there when you remember to use them Yeah. and there was like the one person raised the exact same point you did going oh I don't think I'm using them well enough and one <laughs> of the other hosts was like that's the point that's like they're only there to help a player who's not feeling like they've got a grasp on it perhaps at that point in time and oh this is the thing that helps them hmm. uh, and i thought that was such an interesting outlook on the choice to have it designed in that way do you think that yeah. that counts yeah definitely I, I do feel like they're i do find myself saving them when i'm aware of them for the boss battles mm. on every climb but i can use them more frequently because they come they come more frequently than i than i'm using them for sure uh, and then another good risk versus reward element, one of the main ones, is at campfires. Um, it gives you the choice of either upgrading one of your cards or resting and healing. Yes. Uh, that is such a tricky <laughs> choice to make in this game. <laughs> it is, it is. Because health is so important and it's and it's quite hard to get it back. Depending on the class, there's a few ways to heal yourself. Um, or in shops... Uh, but and through potions. But other than that, it's these campfires are if you're sort of feel like your health is becoming a bit scarily low, then those are the places where you boost that. And they're usually quite far in between each other. Yes. So it's like now or never, and it's they, a heavy decision. They're positioned very well in terms of that yeah. decision. Do you think? Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think it ever says anywhere or explains anywhere exactly how much you're going to heal for. Mm. And I find that also helps in the choice that the difficulty or the challenge of that choice, as you say, the risk in it is going, ooh, am I going to, like, am I hurt enough to need to heal or should I take the risk and go, I'm not 
pro I'm going to heal probably to my max right now, and I don't need to stay max, so maybe I should take the risk and smith something or upgrade a card. Mm. And I wonder if... Yeah, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think it explains ever, and I like that mystery, and I wonder I think if that it, I also think it does, does say what percentage of your max health it's going to be. Ah, I see. But yeah, it's definitely tricky and it's and when you're kind of when you're a little bit low but your next heal is going to put you to max as you said and you're like i probably don't need max then it's <laughs> you're usually like eh. it's it's a good it's a good it's definitely one of the best choices in the game and then also interestingly you can't like preview you can't go to the upgrade card page before you make that choice so you make the choice to go to the upgrade card page and you can't go back to go to heal. Yeah. So it's a little bit like, yeah, do I do I even have any cards I really want to upgrade into the upgrades that I want? I think you can actually preview upgrades on the cards themselves, but a lot yeah. of people just miss that anyway. So I don't think, I think the point still stands there. Yeah. Um, and then other than that, we've also got power relic choices. Um, so... The boss relics that are at the end of fighting a boss of each uh, act, they always give something positive and negative on them. So they're usually one of the most powerful uh, relics you can get, like gaining an extra bit of energy, one extra point of energy, so you can spend an extra point of energy every turn. Um, but in return, you will always get a negative thing, so... Uh, for example, one of the boss relics is gain one energy at the start of each turn, but whenever you open a non-boss chest, you will obtain a curse. Mm. So it's always a, it like, and then there's also relics you can claim that are slightly less beneficial to you with a, a sort of less painful backlash. Um, but it's it's all about power comes at a price. Mm. It feels cool. like such a well balanced game. Mm -hmm. In, in sure. that respect. And I wonder if this is a point to just say, <laughs> given, or to circle back to the point you made earlier about, uh, or I don't know, did I raise this point? Anyway, we spoke about <laughs> the community being involved in the development oh, yeah. and Anthony Giovanetti's GDC talk on how they balanced Slay the Spire is really good. I'll mm. I'll make a note of it somewhere for uh, anyone listening who wants to check that out. But I, I think just to respond to what you've presenting here to say it is in fact a really well-balanced game so yeah yeah where yeah, there seems to be good helped. there's also bad yeah the, the the early access definitely must have helped with this type of stuff mm. uh, we'll add it to the show notes with a link yeah and then the final note that i have on this is the events so the random encounters often give you multiple choices with greater rewards coming at greater costs so, for example, the Council of Ghosts is a really good one, which can give you five apparition cards, which um, are cards that allow any upcoming damage in a battle to go to one damage instead of whatever amount it, it was going to be. And you're able to stack these cards, but also when they're in your hand, unless they're upgraded, when they're in your hand and you don't play them, they always cost one energy. Uh, or power, I think it's called. No, energy, that's right. <laughs> so they always cost one energy, and if you don't play them, then they will be discarded until the end of the battle. Unless you upgrade them, then they won't be discarded by not playing them. Um, but at the base version, they're kind of like... 
if you want to use these cards, which are super powerful cards, you're going to have to play them. And they can stack, so they're super handy. Yeah. You can have multiple turns where you're only getting one damage if you stack these. Uh, so it's super good for saving health, but the cost of buy of getting those apparition cards is lose 50% of your max HP, which is a big, big chunk. Big cost yeah. to give for that. Um, or you can refuse is the other choice and just get nothing out of that encounter. So it's a sort of a very spicy decision that I definitely Googled the first time I came across. <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> I was like, what is an apparition card and what can I do? Ooh, look at you. <laughs> and then it turned the and then I came you. across I came across articles saying that apparition cards are pretty OP and I was like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, if the gamer is has an, a way to break the game, they're like, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. And then another example is there is the encounter called the cleric who can either heal you for 35 gold or he can purify you for 50 gold and remove a card from your deck if you find you have some curses or something in your I've deck. learned to love that cleric mm. recently in my, my playthroughs. And then his final option is also, again, just ignore him and move on. So yep. that one, you're spending... You can spend a little bit of gold, get something pretty good, get, spend a little bit more gold to get something better, or just spend nothing and get nothing. Um, but then the sort of, again, risk versus reward is the more gold you spend... What if you end up with, uh, what if you go for removing a card and then you end up with very little health uh, or a bad set of cards and you come across a shop and you don't have enough gold because you spent all your gold at this cleric. Um, it's always, always trying, all of these things are trying to make you think five steps ahead, which is very, which is what makes this game work very well, I think. Mm, and I think it's the, that satisfying mental uh, juggling. Yeah. That I think what makes it a fairly addictive game. I think people can get, you know, sucked in for yeah. a long time. I th I find that as well when I played. I found it's so hard once you're in the flow of it to put it down because you like right now you're in the mindset of you know what you're going to do next and you've got it all figured out. You've got it all strategized. If you're going to put it down now, then when you pick it back up, it's not you're gonna it's not going to be the same. <laughs> yeah be in the same flow that's a good point that's a good point i wonder if it has anything to do with how transitory it feels like mm. I, I suppose i'm trying to articulate that sense of your deck is constantly changing because you're constantly updating it um like literally round to round new things are happening round to round mm -hmm. uh, and there's a sense of yeah this this constantly evolving world that's moving forward and then everything behind you is also disappearing so it's like uh it's it's so uh ephemeral uh, i suppose or ethereal and, and you're just going through it and there's no nothing stable nothing forever yeah and i think that sort of like getting immersed and not wanting to put it down is such an interesting topic when it comes to roguelikes because like returnal they launched without a safe state they launched with because with their idea it was like you're just like so into the action and you need to just complete your cycle before you get out and next time you restart you restart like like it's meant to be mm -hmm. but then that got a little bit of backlash saying you don't the devs don't appreciate the player's time things like that yeah um so it's a it's a tricky balance to strike there but i do think in roguelikes it works better if you just immerse yourself into the run and end your runs 
Yeah, if you have the time, of course. That's it. And it needs to have a good drop-off point. And yeah. I find what's really good and bad about the Slay the Spire is it feels like you can just very quickly go on to the next thing. It's really easy just yeah. to keep going. It's it's much harder to find the point where you can go, all right, I'm done now, unless you've either died or completed the whole chapter. Yeah, that's a great point. And I also think like just how how quick it plays plays so much into that. Like yeah. you can once you get the the flow of things and the cards you'd usually play and stuff you can just like click 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 and it goes really fast there's no like loading times or anything it's very smooth pick up and play yeah all right i think that wraps it up for bit number one unless you have something to add Marvelous. otherwise uh, we can move we we should be moving forward only we should. Um, i do have a question though which was what is your experience of the gremlin knob in this game do you know which enemy i'm referring to uh, <laughs> can you describe? <laughs> it's the the tall red dude with the horns. Who? Oh right. Yeah. If if you are if you use anything but an attack card, their attacks get stronger and stronger. Ooh yeah yeah. yeah. And just they feel like the epitome or the embodiment of this risk reward. Topic. Yes, that is a good point. Actually, the whole some of these enemies, their buffs that they spawn with, are very much risk versus reward. Like there is also the one that spawns with. Uh, once you attack them, they gain a shield, and then that shield only whittles down. Uh, once you, the more you whittle down that shield, the less that shield adds up every time you attack in the next the next round. Oh, um, there's a lot of these buffs that the character, and there's also the enemy that um, I had it as a point for one of the other bits, <laughs> but there's also the enemy that um, you strike them and then they roll up into a ball and gain gain armor ah um and so it's like do you do you focus on attacking them if they do that or do you focus on uh, another character things like that it's it's very interesting yeah risk versus reward definitely with those buffs as well indeed choices choices well uh thank you for sharing some further future bits into this bit and i'm sorry for extracting that from you Uh, before bit number two i am going to uh, at the end of your turn do a very blue mana thing from magic the gathering and play a card on your turn (laughs) Uh, and i think that's just thematically accurate and drop a quote here before we move directly on to bit two but i think it segues quite nicely yeah let me know cloudfall studios has a blog and ac atienza uh right uh, wrote a thing on Slay the Spire and there was a quote that I think kind of straddles our first bit and our second bit and they say um, essentially trying to dissect the design of this game and, and they they offer like advice and, and inspiration from Slay the Spire to use in someone's own game design and they say present more than one need and some mutual exclusivity that prevents you from doing it all at once because mm. then there must be compromise somewhere And in Slay the Spire, you have limited energy and card draw. So you need to choose between ending the fight sooner, but taking immediate damage, or prolonging the fight and maybe taking more damage if you get a bad draw or the enemy gets stronger. And it's those different elements that I think uh, in this Cloudfall Studios blog goes further on to dissect. Is this confluence, perhaps, of risk versus reward? And then our next thing to discuss... 
for bit number two, <laughs> which is class. And the fact that you are building a deck or a loadout uh, around a specific uh, class strategy. So what are they called again, Oliver? There's the Ironclad, which is like the warrior. Yes. What's the poison one's name? Uh, there is the Ironclad. There is the Silent, who's ah, yeah. the assassin. Mm -hmm. And there's the Defect. That's the robot character. The robot who can summon orbs. Mm -hmm. And then there is the... Watcher, who is the final character, but I think neither of us unlocked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so that, we will not touch on that one too. Yeah, we, we won't mention it today, but uh, <laughs> anyone listening, if you'd like to add, please get a hold of us uh, in the ways and means you can. I'm so, sure it's, it's just as... I'm sure it's another completely different class, just as interesting as all the others. Mm, for sure. And it's it's that's bit number two, really. It's just this the joy, for me at least, uh, in the design choice to have uh, class and taking that Cloudfall quote as a, the springboard, uh, this idea of not just saying, well, you can do all these cool things with all these cool cards and you can choose however you want to connect them. Instead, uh, limiting what the player can do based on the class they choose. So you're only going to see poison cards with the silent character. You're only going to see these cards that kind of load up energy that fires off at the end of your turn if you're playing the defect. And I think it's really interesting as a choice for the player around classes I could be a bit biased because I like Dungeons and Dragons and I very much buy into that. What is that holy trinity of uh, <laughs> game design like classes? It's your your healer, your tank, your damage guy. Mm. And, and it's like uh, your damage guy is going to be uh, not as defensive. Uh, your tank is not going to be able to maybe deal as much damage and won't be able to heal themselves, which is why you need a healer. And that to me is, is super interesting and i have some some other quotes but before i go into them was there anything on this bit oliver that you wanted to throw him at, at this present point so that i'm not <laughs> talking uh, ad nauseum <laughs> yeah i just wanted to sort of dive into how the like what the classes are a little bit in each yeah that'll be a nicer uh, grounding before i get onto uh, these other things yeah yeah won't yeah, you so, please hit us with that so the ironclad is the the one everyone starts with, which is it's it's also interesting how each class gets a little bit more complicated, mm -hmm. and so that way kind of like nicely builds up for game for the game's longevity. So you can either, kind of the ironclad is a little bit of an all around character in a sense. It's it's your most basic almost soldier type class, um, that's very much straight physical hits or blocks. Um, one hit type things in most cases um, and then so that one's very sort of pretty straightforward and then the second one you unlock is silent which is the assassin class as we said um, who is um, that one's a little bit more is that one's deck is a little bit more focused on um, assassin style moves with multiple strikes and also in, interestingly it has it's focused around the ability to poison enemies which our previous class couldn't do. So there is this second layer introduced on that one. Um, and then the third one is the Defect, who is that uh, robot-type character. Um, he's a bit like a wizard, in a traditional sense, um, who can summon orbs, for which can then, once you've got a, a set of orbs active, it can um, deal passive damage and protection 
while you play. So it's a little bit like that one is very much more thinking ahead than the other ones before it. So again, it's getting a lot more complex with the mechanics with that character. Um, I assume the Watcher, again, is like another layer trickier. Mm. But uh, but we can't speak to that one, as we said. Um, but it's very interesting. Uh, I think um, each, especially with each class having their own set of cards in the game, it's to drive their play style. It makes it, I think that's what makes the game work so well as this very almost traditional rogue roguelike where you basically lose everything every run other than the each character sort of progresses in XP and leveling which unlocks more cards that they can find that character can find so specific class cards uh, so I think that's that makes you experiment a little bit but what makes the what makes it work as such a punishing roguelike is definitely this class variety I think where um, every playthrough has its own set of every every character has its own set of cards that they can find and play with which makes for a different very different play style depending on the character and every playthrough that way feels like a whole new strategy needs to be thought about and then and then as a result of that it also allows for so much mastery by just focusing on each character at a time and how they play and trying to get into that mindset that was um, that was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just one other thing is there are also class-specific relics and potions. Which is are there? See, I did not know that. <laughs> so each each character starts with a unique class relic, which immediately puts uh, puts you into a different strategic mindset with your playthrough. Yes. Um, so immediately you're trying to embed this new passive perk within your strategy as you play with, with each different class. So Ironclad heals 6 HP at the start at the end of each combat. Mm -hmm. Silent draws two additional cards at the start of each combat. Mm -hmm. uh, the defect channels one lightning uh, energy at the start of each combat. And the Watcher starts with a miracle in his hand. I don't know what that means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but basically, each each one of these especially the difference between starting with two additional cards at the start of combat against, for example, Ironclad's healing 6 HP at the end of each combat. With Ironclad, you're, you might employ a strategy where you're a bit more aggressive and you're taking a little bit more damage. You're allowing the, the occasional um, HP points taking off because you know that at the end of the match you're going to heal 6 HP. But then... When you're playing Silent, for example, you you don't get that extra heal, so you might want to block a lot more damage, mm -hmm. and then so sort of like focus in when when you know the character isn't going to strike you. So immediately you're you're faced with these different strategic mindsets, which is super interesting. With this thorough foundation, thank you so much, <laughs> Oliver, for the for like I I needed that I needed that that context I think to mm. just explain one last little tack on point and it's really just to get to the hook i think or the the key takeaway of this bit which is that the class variety leads to strategy which i think is what you've also uh, suggested in mm -hmm. your explanation and from the previous bit tied to this one this idea that the challenging part of this game is how it forces the player to adapt to whatever the game is throwing at them and i think part of that is as you've suggested based on the the deck building i guess is that 
a player's choices have impact because they linger, right? It's like the choice you make here is going to inform your later choices, not just on that roguelike tree going mm. up the spire, but every card you play and every card you choose. And on the topic of the class, that podcast I mentioned earlier, uh, they spoke about each class feeling more like something you pilot, so something you kind of have to steer uh, towards something rather than the way maybe magic or other deck builders uh, kind of let you freely just create the thing your own. But rather here, there's a definitely, as you've mentioned, a play style. There's mm. a language to the character that you kind of just learn to speak uh, through the cards. Which leads me to the last thing I would just throw into this bit before we move on, which is uh, a quote from Joshua Beiser. We've mentioned them before, I think, when we spoke about Hades. I think I mentioned the book Game Design Deep Dive, uh, the book on roguelikes, and that's Josh Beiser, isn't it? But Beiser also has uh, a website for game wisdom, uh, and in that article on Slay the Spire, they say that the beauty of the design in Slay the Spire is that the cards for each character can fit into one of two categories. So you've got your bread and butter cards, they're always good. Or build specific cards that can form into a strategy. And that's the thing we've been speaking about the last few minutes here. Bicer goes on to say that a relic, the thing you mentioned, Oliver, mm -hmm. <laughs> that grants you a bonus card, for example, on discard, doesn't sound that big. But when you combine that with a deck built on it, suddenly you can have like mm. nigh infinite card draw, right? It's this idea or this, this kind of controlled, in inverted commas, air quotes here, controlled number generation. So instead of random number generation, RNG, this CNG, it gives the player more of a factor in their success, makes you feel like you've controlled the, the random whims of the gods. Mm. And most games would have just given the player a reward, right? And say, that's it, we'll call it a day. But by leaving the choice up to the player, it gives them control and makes the act of winning now a part of your strategy. That is the whole quote from Josh Beiser, which I thought encapsulated, to me at least, this idea of Slay the Spire's class variety informing and leading to strategy in the game. Yeah, for sure. I, like, I definitely find myself sort of building a deck around one of the best cards that I've gotten so far or something. Mm. So like, when you defeat an epic or a, or a, or a boss... Then they usually drop like a. They often drop a gold card, and those ones yes. I like. The first gold card I get, I often try and build other cards of my deck around. Like for example, if the gold card is double attack on your next turn or something, then I'll I'll try and get super high damaging attack cards or something that I can then employ after using that card or something. There's definitely a lot of thinking ahead going on and building around something that you get during the specific turn, during that specific run. Excellent. Well, to adapt and move further on our specific run, that <laughs> is it for bit number two. Shall we proceed? Nice. Yes. Bit number three is the enemy intentions, which we thought is very interesting in this game. So... Um, one of the notable systems in this game is that every time it's your turn, the enemies will have a little bit of UI above their head that displays what they will be doing next. So this can be either attack, 
and then it will be a sword icon with a, a certain amount of a certain number alongside it which will indicate how much they're planning to deal damage so and then with that one you can often plan to try and block as much of it as possible or uh, bring it down by some other means of, of certain powers or cards that can nullify the damage. Um, there is then shielding that they can apply to themselves. Uh, they don't show how much they're shielding for. It's only the attack one that shows the value, I think. Uh, but it's it's a blue shield that appears above their head will indicate that next turn they're playing to shield, which is often a good time for the player to hone in and strike as much as they can before that happens. Um, usually, because in general, players will find inclined to def to apply blocks to apply shields to themselves when there's a lot of incoming damage. But then when there is either shielding going on or uh, the they're planning to play a debuff, which is some green circling spiral, I think, mm. um, which appears above their head. During those times, players might be inclined to sort of focus their damage as they know they're not going to take direct damage on the next turn which is it's it's such a brilliant system to just for players to fully get an understanding of the cards they have in their hands and the situation they're in right now and the situation that's coming up next to in order to make sort of good informed decisions and um, not sort of rely on the RNG of what the enemies might be doing next knowledge is power for sure and i think also an interesting one is there is a mystery icon as well it's, it's signified by three question marks yes i've seen that uh, <laughs> when the enemy has that above their head that's the exception where you don't know uh, there's also some like combined ones where it's like a sword and a green mark or something where they're yeah. going to attack and apply a debuff or something like that but yeah yeah. Other than that, there's also these question marks, which is the only sort of full mystery element. And yet, um, even in that, they are telling you that there is a mystery. <laughs> they are saying, <laughs> you will not know the next one. Yeah, exactly. And that's I think that's such a great one, because it has that, but it also says it will never be, it won't be an attack. So... Yes. You don't have to worry about, like, uh, it could be, like, suddenly a crazy amount of 60 damage like fully randomized who knows what it's going to be but it instead it's like something a little bit different a little bit special a lot of elites have it a lot of bosses have it um and like something like they spawn minions or something is what it could be or they split or with the slimes for example they split in large slimes they split into two smaller slimes once they reach below 50 hp which is uh, also communicated through their debuffs on the characters uh, or buffs, rather, in this sense. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really cool one, because I like... I think if it's f if it would have been, like, full visibility on what's happening all the time, I think they strike a good balance between showing the stuff that's kind of necessary for the player to know when it, when it comes to, like, how much damage you're going to be dealt. It's nice to know that so that you can... so that you can retaliate accordingly. Yeah. Um, but then with the shielding, which doesn't show a value, and with the mystery ones... It's cool to have that extra element of mystery where you can where you got to kind of gauge what might happen next, mm. and still have a little bit of so you you can plan but you can also be surprised which is nice. Yeah, there's also a sense of of learning the language of that, isn't there? Like 
I, I noticed if you hover over those symbols, mm. you may learn more or less, as you've said, like this is the debuff, this is the buff. But if you want to, you can hover over them and they kind of explain a bit more in depth, which yeah. I thought was a nice inclusion here. Yeah, that's great because a lot of games have a lot of icons like <clears throat> Elden Ring. Uh, but um, <laughs> without explaining them properly, <laughs> uh, but it's great that you can like just hover over, dive in, see what it says, be super, be super clear about everything, where the player has sort of full control about their next moves, um, allowing for the mystery without the frustration is what I is what I put here in my notes. Ooh, very nice. Um, and then also the not just that, not just those sort of icons in regards to the enemy intentions, but also the enemy designs, I thought, are super well done yeah. in this game. Go on. Um, as they convey to the player what you might expect from them and strategize accordingly. A little bit like how good fighting game characters are designed by just seeing their silhouettes, sort of knowing what type of um, combat you can expect from them. Like if they're a bit wider and chunkier, they might be slower, but pack a punch right oh like um, so how chun li in street fighter is going to kick you yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in a similar sense the enemy designs here are very well done in the sense that the way they look or what they're holding give a good sense of what you might expect from them which often is also communicated through the buffs on them but if you're not looking at the buffs just their physical appearance it gives a good sense of what might happen. So, for example, the louses, which are the ones I was mentioning earlier, have a hard shell, have a hard outer shell on their body, and then when you hit them once, they curl up, and then they gain a lot of block until their next turn. So it's kind of like you can sort of, sort of expect that they have this armor that they can um, latch onto. Um, similar with the shelled parasites. Uh, that looks like a very armored character. That one gains armor when attacked, and then that effect lowers the more you wither that armor down and you heal uh, damage to its flesh. And then this is especially brilliant in the boss fights in this game, I think, which each boss having their very unique appearance and their question mark attacks that you can sometimes almost guess according to the way they look or behave. For example, the Hexaghost in Act 1, one of the bosses has six orbs that sort of circle around him, oh, yeah. and they light up. They they light up into a little ball of fire, one after every turn, and so straight away you're realizing like, oh, uh oh, <laughs> I probably don't want all of those balls to be lit up because something bad's gonna happen. Yeah. Uh, so straight away for that one, you can. You know, troubles ahead if all of those circles are gonna light up. So you wanna maybe try and be very offensive to that enemy and try to get him knocked down before uh, before the sixth, end of the sixth turn reaches where the six orbs have all lit up. And the more mysterious monsters also... I, I like that the most mysterious monsters also make you want to maybe play it safe and observe for a few rounds before banking on a specific strategy. Like You might shield a lot until you understand their cycles. Uh, which is also encouraging mastery through replayability, like the best roguelike action games like Hades or something. In their boss fights, you're also kind of dodging a lot and looking what they're doing yeah. before you before you decide on the best approach to defeat them. Mm -hmm. 
but that's it for my bit. Unless there's anything else you want to add to that. We are so good about just uh, providing the floor, aren't we? I'm so glad we do that. Like, in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm chuffed. Uh, the only thing I wanted to add is, in my best Oliver voice, is did you know? Did you know how the development of the intent system came about? Mm. Did you know it was heavily iterated upon? I did not. Please enlighten. Uh, to the best of my ability, I will paraphrase. <laughs> but um, originally, the enemies didn't show any like next intended action because mm. that was the the common thing with turn-based RPGs which I did feel when I started playing this game for a longer period of time than just like a few minutes to check it out I went this reminds me of like Final Fantasy that sort of mm-hmm. okay I choose my thing then the enemy does its thing and then the devs at Megacrit created a next turn system uh, so you can at least see which which enemy was going to go. I I think was how they were they were doing it. I don't know the exact details, um, but they developed from there again thanks to all the feedback from the community uh, to have it be intense to show what was there. Then they didn't want to show any numbers at all, but then that got confusing, uh, and then they decided to put numbers onto the attacks. And it just I appreciated how they demonstrated excellence in iteration as they constantly work to make the thing better. And I think the last thing I would just throw at your feet, Oliver, is to say, I think, I think the whole intent system, it allows the player or the game to focus on self, not enemies. So by showing you what the enemies are going to do, you think about what you are going to do. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It draws attention away from them and the mystery of them, unless it's time for a mystery. uh, And it says, right, what are you going to do with that information? And I thought that was a really cool effect that that design choice had on the experience of the player. Yeah, and I think that feeds back into the whole risk and reward thing, where if you know know how much they're going to hit you, you can still decide for yourself to go full aggressive on your turn and take take the whole damage. Or... Or shield half of it, take a bit, give a bit of damage to wither a bit away at them. Um, it's it's fully in your sort of capacity to take gauge the understanding of the inf- of the information you have, and then play it to your risk versus reward fancy. Stupendous bit numero three completed. Catching. yeah thank you so much oliver for talking about slay the spire i really enjoyed those three bits and i've enjoyed the time i've spent playing the game yeah me too i think it was a great sort of very different feeling game than some of the others we've played so far and it was a very interesting discussion yeah and hopefully to anyone listening you've enjoyed this as well and if you haven't already played the game go ahead give it a try now you know some stuff it is now that time of the show before we wrap up where i ask oliver what are you playing right now that is not slay the spire right now as we are podcasting (laughs) no um i've been playing i was on holiday last week and i played a bunch of i brought my switch and i played a bunch more of pokemon legends rcs or arceus however you like to pronounce it oh yeah yeah that's that's the one in sort of uh ancient japan inspired place yes 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 it's uh it's the open world sort of new approach for pokemon games one um it's it's getting a bit more interesting i've, I've unlocked a few things like um swimming th- with pokemon and so you've got a lot more traversal things unlocked over time um 
the only thing I really enjoy a lot of it. The only thing I feel like it doesn't quite capture from the previous games is I found I found a need to uh, to evolve my Pokemon a lot more. Mm. Like I found battling with certain Pokemon that I wanted to evolve and make stronger was so much more of a bigger focus to me and interesting to me in the previous games than it is in this one because it's a lot easier to just find the evolutions of each Pokemon out in ah, the wild. Ah, good point. So you can just go out and catch that one instead of like going on the evolution grind, which is, I think it's a bit of a shame. And I hope they kind of like balance that out a little bit better in the next iteration, which should be coming out next month, I think, in November is Scarlet and Violet. My goodness, so many Pokemon games. (laughs) That's good. That's great. Um, How about you? I dived into a bit of Deathloop recently i haven't been playing as much as i would like because i think you know this but i'm a big fan of arcane studios Mm -hmm. and i devoured dishonored in the space of a month like literally all of them Uh, and dana nightingale and dinga bakaba do not know that they are the designers i most admire and respect and if there is a small (laughs) chance that they're listening to this right now now they know Uh, but Deathloop is so far i'm loving it i think it's really interesting i think it's peak arcane and i think that opening i know i understand based on some behind the scenes things i've read and listened to that they struggled with that opening of the game Mm. and trying to uh, have players understand what the hell they need to do in this game but honestly i thought it was beautiful genius loved it and i think jason e kelly's voice for the main character is the best i've ever heard in a game i think it's phenomenal and the characterization is just first in class yeah i i need to dive back into that one after hearing a bunch of talks it's at a conference recently oh yeah you were at brighton weren't you at the, yeah 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 develop you, that's the one and you were you were in that actual talk i was live in the flesh amazing excellent um, yeah i thought it was i because when i first tried the game i didn't super get into it but now knowing a lot more about the systems and stuff from a design point of view i'm like that's really interesting, actually. Now <laughs> I kind of want to check it out again. I think it's. A, I, I I've heard a lot of people are kind of struggled to get into this one. I think I'm not super keen on the menu system in the game. That is a bit complicated. And I think also the first time they introduce it, this was I heard in the talk was very much a last minute addition to explain things a bit better. But the first time they introduce it is it's like a very mobile games almost highlighting of certain UI elements that you need to go into. Um, and I think it ruins the immersion a little bit, this menu system, compared to the Dishonored games. Yeah, yeah, fair. But fair uh, but there is definitely cool stuff about it, and maybe we'll have our own chat about it in one of these episodes. That would bring me the most joy. <laughs> uh, but that is it for today. Oliver, where can anyone listening get a hold of us if they wish? Please follow us or send us any um, comments on our episodes at Twitter at 3BitDesign. Marvellous. Thank you so much. Have a good time of your lives. Have a good week yourself, Oliver. And goodbye. Goodbye.